So first, I have a little announcement. Uh, if you could stay here, instead of being after tomorrow, it could be good. After tomorrow will come soon enough. And uh, also meaning that don't worry, you'll manage to get out. <laughs> and tomorrow at 5.15 at the end of the discussion, there will be the manager's talk and <coughs> arrangement about living and what to do and everything will be sorted out. Also for the people who are going to stay over, we'll, we'll also talk about the week, the change of a day, what to do, how to do it, and all these things in due time. It has been thought about, which allow you not to think about it too much. So tomorrow everything will be taken care of. So this evening, what I wanted to do is uh, actually look at quotes from the Zen tradition, which might give some light on the practice and on different things. So it's just a few quotes I have taken out of certain texts, which I think could be relevant to the retreat, to our practice now. So the first quote is by the sixth patriarch, Huineng, Chinese patriarch, dated from about the 8th, 800 AD. And this is what he says. He who is puffed up by the slightest impression, I am now enlightened, is no better than when he was under delusion. <laughs> so shall I repeat it? He who is puffed up by the slightest impression, I am now enlightened, is no better than when he was under delusion. So it's not saying it's not a good idea to be awakened. It's not saying that. But in a way, what is our relationship to awakening, to degrasping, to meditative state? As I said before, when we sit in meditation often, we are waiting for something special to happen. It's kind of like we are on tender hook and we have the radar waiting for any little, little different, special. And of course, at times it happens. But I think it's very important to see that the practice is not just about having this state. But it is true that the practice is also the fact that we experience different meditative states. And then to how do we consider this meditative state? How do we relate to them? How do we relate to them to also our daily life? And so I would say there are many different types of meditative experience we can have. First, we can experience what I call meditative state, which is when we start to feel quietness and clarity. So that generally it just comes 
we are meditating and suddenly it feels a little different. Like we are not doing the meditation anymore. Because a lot of the time we are doing the meditation. And then you know, it's kind of like something happened where we feel there is just you know, a quietness and clarity. And at the beginning, of course, we think, great, 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 this is it, enlightenment in the next corner, you know? Then I can get the Rolls Royce and the <laughs> disciple or whatever. <laughs> but what is interesting, as soon as we do this, it goes. And then actually we have to learn. And this is part of the meditative process. We have to learn to just be with this meditative state. And what is interesting is the more we learn to just be with them, then the more, in a way, they continue. And then, of course, they go. They go because the energy of that moment has gone. Generally, we cannot sustain it. And so it goes. And I would say what is, um, we to look at this meditative state as nurturing. Because I would say it's a de-grasping. You know, we're not grasping. And so we experience quietness and clarity, which comes from the practice. And I think it's very, in a way, restful and clarifying at the same time. We just feel differently. And we know we can feel differently. So I think this is also interesting. And so I would say it's kind of like food for our practice. But to see that in daily life, too, we can have this experience. And well, suddenly, we can have that quietness and clarity. And not to go into, it must be like this all the time. But in a way, to appreciate when time to time, we just, in a way, let go. And often that letting go, we don't say, let go, be quiet and clear. You know, it just happens to us. In maybe when we talk to a friend or when we're in nature, or whatever, <coughs> it might just happen. And so we know it just, again, to appreciate it, to enjoy it, as long as it lasts. Another thing you might experience, and this might be a little more confusing, is what I call mystical state. And so you kind of like, you sit in meditation or maybe at other time, and suddenly you have this really exciting feeling, a very joyful, very exhilarating. And then, of course, you can perceive it in different ways. For example, you could perceive in that moment of exhilaration that everybody has a Buddha nature. You have no doubt that even your worst enemy also as a Buddha nature, but normally you would not think so. So in that moment, it's kind of like total, kind of, it's kind of not a faith, a belief in something, is that in that moment, you know that potential in everybody, in yourself and in everybody. And because you know it experientially, it feels really exciting, really exhilarating. But again, like all experience, Generally, it passes. And then the challenge is, when my neighbor gives me a hard time, can I see that he or she too has a Buddha nature? Because I think that is, 
in a way, we have the experience, but how can the experience become organic into our daily life? How can they make a difference in our daily life? And that, I think, is a big question in a way. What does it mean? How can it make sense in our daily life? And not in what I would call a heroic, mega way, but in, in a small way. How would it make sense? How could I apply it? And sometimes we have an experience of what I would call dissolution or emptiness. You know, you might sit in meditation and then you feel your body dissolving or not there in the way it normally feels. Or you might be looking at some pain and suddenly the pain just dissolves. It's empty. And often the one about the body, often this is a little frightening. You know, I am not myself. Because we have a very strong sense of identity with how our body feels. And in that moment, you have the feeling the body disappears. But the body is still there. I mean, once there is this young man telling me, you know, my body is not there. Or, I feel my body is not there. I said, I kind of poked him a bit. I said, you know? <laughs> and he said, yes, yes, I can feel this. It's still there. But the way you feel about it is extremely different. Because, again, there is not that identification, that grasping. This is my body, separate from the rest of the world. And you just feel like the, the, the limit of it is very different. So the body itself does not change, but the way we experience it, the perception of it, is very different. So I think to be careful with being frightened of that, and at the same time being careful also to what is it after such experience which can reground ourselves. So we can feel again comfortable in our body and not have this feeling of no boundary. And at the same time still have a feeling of spaciousness. And I think that's what that can help us a little with. In terms of the emptiness, again we have to see, and I'll talk more a little bit about this later. Then we can have an insight. And an insight is like, you know, you go about to your meditation or whatever it is, and suddenly you see something you've never seen before. And suddenly you think, wow. I mean, it might have been in front of your face, but you did not see it whatsoever. And so, ah, and, and, but when it happens, it's striking by contrast with the fact that before you did not know it. And that's why you have this kind of ah moment. But then, after that, it passes. The, the excitement of having seen that passes. And then, in a way, you left with the memory of that understanding, which is not the same. It doesn't feel the same as the experience of it. And then the question is, how is this, again, going to be able to be useful, to be applied 
in my daily life. I think this is, again, the challenge. And so to be careful not to think that one is going to take that state that we might have experienced on a meditation retreat and totally replicate it in daily life. The conditions are so different. But maybe what, we can, what can happen is that just the memory of it might soften the ages of the grasping around that, or the pattern around that. So it will be a little lighter. Then the next one. In the daily life, in the daily activities, and this is by Tawi, Master Tawi, which is one of my uh, great heroes, again 12th century, the one who wrote about the demon doll, and he's a great Zen master, Chinese master of the 12th century. And that's what he says about emptiness. In the daily activity of a student of the path, to empty object is easy, but to empty mind is hard. If objects are empty, but mind is not empty, mind will be overcome by objects. Just empty your mind, and object will be empty of themselves. I know this sounds a little tricky, and you might think, what? What is she talking about? What is it talking about? But to me, this is actually a very crucial point, that distinction. What is it that is empty? Is it our mind, or is it the object? Because I think it, it makes a big difference. Because as he says, to empty object is easy, but to empty mind is hard. And it's true. We can easily, in a way, look at objects and see that they're conditioned. Of course, we might feel attracted or repulsed by the object, but it's relatively easy to see it's conditioned. It's impermanent. And from that understanding, we might easily say, oh yeah, objects, who cares? They're impermanent, they arise, they pass away. I am, I am above them. I can deal with this. And then generally what happens is that you take, like, you know, everything is illusion, all objects are illusion, it's all Maya, you know, I am transcending all this stuff, you know, and material thing, of course, I don't care, or things of that nature. But that, I think, is actually relatively easy to do, especially on the spiritual path. But then, if the mind is not empty, and that's what Tawi is saying, be careful. If objects are empty, but mind is not empty, mind will be overcome by objects. And I think that's what often happens. People who have this kind of experience of no self, experience of things being conditioned, being impermanent, in a way, the, the, the first uh, stage, they kind of, in a way, go into this feeling, you know, I transcend everything. And generally, the first thing they transcend is ethics. And then the first thing they do is drink alcohol and have sex, which is weird. They just empty object. And then, look, 
they go back to object. As the Dalai Lama said, you know, I mean, they're really, really transcending everything, all object. They should be able to drink urine. No difference <laughs> with drinking alcohol. It's all empty. So why choose one over the other? <laughs> and very partial, too. <laughs> so that's what is interesting. I think we have to be very careful of that one. Because I think it is easy to take what I would call a kind of like absolute position. I am above it all. I am one with the universe. Everything is empty. Once in, um, in Korea, there was a, I mean, the practice is quite, you know, intense, but what we do 10 hours a day is really considered uh, ordinary practice. This is really ordinary stuff, nothing to tell anybody about. But hard practice is you practice all day and all night. And even harder, you go to a hermitage and you do that all day, all night with your, you know, spiritual buddies. So we have these three guys who want to do that. You know, they decided, they go into awaken, they go into practice hard. So off they go to the hermitage and they practice really hard. And so one of them experienced emptiness. His body is empty, everything is empty. So he rushed down the path, goes to Master Kuzan, because then you have to have your understanding checked. And he goes to Master Kuzan and he said, everything is empty. I am awakened, you know, give me the transmission. And so Master Kuzan takes his, he had a big gnarled wooden stick, about that high and that thick. And so he hit him with it. And the guy said, you see, not everything is empty. <laughs> Go back to practice and empty the mind. But then he was not convinced because his experience was so amazing. Everything was empty. So he goes to the next master who did exactly the same. Then he go to the third one who does exactly the same. So finally he's convinced and go back to practicing more and emptying the mind now. Because as Tawi says, if just empty your mind, an object will be empty of themselves. And emptying the mind doesn't mean that there is no mind or that there is no thought. But it means there is no stickiness in the mind. There is no grasping in the mind. And that is much harder. That is much harder. A thought comes up, mine. A sound comes up, I like it, I don't like it. I mean, it's very, we very, we grasp so quickly. And anyway, that's what we're trying to do. Emptying the mind not to get rid of the mind or the thought, but to, you know, it has, uh, Winang said, no mind is a mind free from grasping. It goes everywhere and it sticks nowhere. So in a way, that's what we're trying to do. It doesn't mean, it, it doesn't mean that we go into some transcendent state, but that our whole mind, how the way we identify, the way we grasp, start to be dissolved. And then when it's like that, then we can creatively engage with object. Because we start to have a very different relationship to object. We don't identify so much anymore with them. 
as uh, there is this famous story of Achan Chan. And he is in his room, and there is a young American visiting. And there is this beautiful glass on the table. And the, because in, in Thailand, it's wonderful. You go into an abbot's room, and there is weir the weirdest thing. Uh, when I went there many years ago, you had tennis racket, you had golf club, you had all kind of really weird things. Because they are renunciate, people give them lots of things, kind of what they do there. <laughs> so he had this beautiful glass on this table. And then the, the young Westerner said, how come you have a beautiful glass like this? You know, I mean, you are renunciate. You know, you should not have this kind of thing. And the master replied, Achancha replied, the way I relate to the glass is that I use it because it's very useful. You know, it's beautiful. I appreciate its beauty. I also used to drink it. But as I use it, I know that it is already broken. So as he uses it, he knows it's impermanent. So he is not grasping at it. He is not imputing anything to that glass for himself. Then another quote. To let not a passing thought rise up is mind. To let not the coming thought be annihilated is Buddha. This is very Zen. To let not a passing thought rise up is mind. So basically he's saying, don't in a way, let the thought proliferate. And that is mind, to just the thought arise, but you don't do anything with it. And at the same time, don't let the coming thought be annihilated. Basically saying, don't repress the thought. So in a way, it's kind of, this is really tough in meditation. How can I not follow the thought and at the same time not push it away? That's what he's trying to say. How can we, in a way, to me, it's like, can we consider our thought, as we sit in meditation, for example, like sounds? As we sit in meditation and we listen to the sound, we generally would not query, why is this sound going on? You know, we would not generally attach too much to it. Be a bit curious if we don't understand what it is. But we just accept that he comes and he goes. And I think, in a way, can we consider the thought popping up in our mind like sound popping up? Just like that, they arise. They just arise. The organism is working. The brain is working. And can we just let them arise and not immediately, it's me, it's my story. It's this, that, and another, and ah, a thought. And at the same time, not say, oh, I should not think. It's bad to think. Because often I have the feeling when people sit in meditation, they think it's bad to think. It's not bad to think in meditation. You can have very good information. So we're not trying to stop the information. I mean, if you really, really don't want to have any thought, I can give you the recipe. No problem. 
I mean, you just go on a retreat, you sit 10 hours a day in silence for a month, and I can nearly guarantee that if nobody does anything too dramatic to you and you don't become too ill of anything of that nature, then by day 25, you will have no thought because nothing is happening. <laughs> I mean, that's generally the reason why we don't have many thoughts because there is no input, output, so the mind becomes very nothing. But is it what we're trying to do? I'm not sure that's what we're trying to do. I think we're trying to do more what I would call developing less stickiness to the thought so that then the thought can arise within more space. There is more space around them and then we can have more choice. If I want to think this, I do. If not, I don't. And so, in a way, what happens sometimes as we sit in meditation, we have, I would say, insightful thought. And then, in a way, to follow that, because it's insightful, it's kind of clarifying. But it's very interesting, because at the beginning, suddenly it's so clear and so insightful. And then after a while, it becomes repetitive. And then you can let it go. Then you can let it go. And then you can go back to just the anchor, to just the meditation. Or another thing we can do with thought is what I call meditative creative thinking. If you have something in, on your mind, you really, it comes and comes and comes, some decision, something. <coughs> I would say, think about it for 30 minutes every day, sitting in meditation or walking, whatever is suitable. And then the anchor is that, that problem, that decision, that story. But the vipassana is that you look at it in a different way. You question what you're thinking. You think, how would somebody else think about it? Once I was teaching on a retreat, a Zen retreat, and one person had really great difficulty. The first day she came, she told me, I can't sit, I can't sit. I'm, I'm, I have too much trouble. I can't. So I said, okay, every day I can see you for uh, 20, 30 minutes and you can, you know, just speak with me and see if that can, you know, just slowly, slowly uh, take its time, kind of dissolve it a bit. So that's what we did and she was able to do the retreat. But to me, what was very interesting is that every day, for the 20 minutes, I had a different story. I, I did not say much, I just listened. And it was like a different angle, a different facet. So one day I had this one, next day this one. And after six days, she actually had gone around the whole thing. And, and in a way, it seems to me realizing that there was not just one answer or one way to look at this, that there was many conditions coming together in that situation. And I felt that from that, maybe she could have the courage to possibly make a choice. Or if she did not make a choice, then she would know why she would not make that choice. So it went to see that if we just repeat the same thing, we go round and round in circle. And so sometimes it's good to explore and then stop. Because more thinking generally is kind of like, Running doesn't, doesn't help, but then we can come back to it again freshly, leave it, then again come back to it. Then you have the next one. For ordinary men or women is Buddha. 
and compulsion are awakening. A foolish passing thought makes one an ordinary person, while an awakened second thought makes one a Buddha. A passing thought that clings to sense object is compulsion, while a second thought that frees one from attachment is awakening. And so here again, it's kind of a very Zen, especially the first sentence. For ordinary men and women is Buddha and compulsion are awakening. What they're basically saying here is that we are not separate. To become a Buddha, we don't need to be different than who we are. Once somebody asked my teacher, Master Kuzan, what was the difference between him, anybody, and Master Kuzan was supposed to be really kind of, you know, uh, realized or whatever. And, Master, and I really thought the answer was very interesting. He said, we are on the same train. You might be a little at the back, I could be a little at the front, but we are on the same train. We are not in a different train. And I think that's what is, in a way, that's what also Tawi was trying to say yesterday, when he said, that which see dim and dull is not dim and dull. And the Buddha is going to arise out of the ordinary person. And the compulsion, the habit, the pattern are the stuff which can turn, become awakening. So they are not obstacle per se if we can creatively engage with them. They does not stop us from realizing, experiencing breakthrough. Because sometimes I feel if we have too much this idea of absolute, of transcendence, it's kind of like you think, but look at me. You know, I mean, how can I get there? And basically they say it, it's not different. It's the same material. And one is not stopping the other. But in a way, it's how can you use the material so that things can shift, things can change. And then there can be this transformation. And that's what they say. A foolish passing thought makes one an ordinary person, while an awakened second thought makes one a Buddha. So in a way, one moment, we are an ordinary, misguided person. Next moment, we can be a Buddha. One moment, we can have a very deluded thought. Next moment, we, we can have a very clear thought. So it's not that we can win away so stuck. Recently, I, I read this book, which I found very inspiring, which was a book by uh, Christopher Lawson. About, and it's called Moments of Clarity. And it's about addiction. And this time, because he has written a book before about his addiction, this time it was about going to different people who had recovered from addiction and asking them what was the moment where suddenly you decided to change. What is it that... And each of them was so different. It was so interesting to see that they look really stuck. And they said, I was so stuck. But then, within that stuckness, there was something, what I would call the creative potential, which, when something happened, suddenly it was lit. And so all these people 
had their moment of clarity, which totally changed their life. And I think that's, that is what this is about, that moment of clarity. You can have you know, a silly thought. Next, you can have a wise thought. And that's what he goes on to say. A passing thought that clings to sense object is compulsion. Well, a second thought that frees one from grasping is awakening. And so I think it's basically back to that. Do I grasp? But the fact that I grasp doesn't mean I cannot open. The fact that I open doesn't mean that I cannot grasp. I think it's very important that it goes both ways. Because often we think, you know, meditative experience, fantastic, you know, this, that, and another. And we think this is it. Now I am enlightened. And that's what the winning was saying, you know. So in a way, it's to see that, yes, any moment we can open. But again, any moment we can close. And that's why, in a way, we need to have that creative wisdom, have that compassion, the compassion for the moment where we close, and also that wisdom to see the moment when we can open. Then another one, to have no wrongdoings in the midst of the mind is a precept. To have no giddiness in the midst of the mind is concentration. To have no foolishness in the midst of the mind is wisdom. And basically, although in the Zen tradition they, they often really emphasize meditation, what was uh, interesting in Korea is that they really emphasize equally, even if we did a lot of meditation, ethics, meditation, and wisdom. And here, that's what he is talking about. To have no wrongdoing in the midst of the mind is a precept. And so in a way, it's to look at, it's back to ethics. To me, what is interesting with ethics is not that we are the, the always good, or always pure, or always harmless, but to look at the conditions. What are the conditions which make me go this way or make me go that way? Because if you look at you know, great people, like if you look at Gandhi, you think you know, he was an amazing person and he's one of my heroes. But I am not uh, blind to the fact that he was a terrible father. He really was an awful father. So the fact that he was a great person one side did not mean that the other side, he was a bit weird in some ways. And so in a way, it's to see that to have no wrongdoing in the mind, that's ethics. So it's in a way trying to cultivate, of course, harmlessness, not being aggressive, not taking advantage. But then also to be interested. When is it that I become aggressive? When is it I am tempted to lie, or I'm tempted to do this or to do that? That's what is interesting, you know, because most of the time I would say we're quite nice people. But what is it that makes it different? Then the next, the next one is to have no giddiness in the midst of the mind is concentration. So you know, it's back to the, the stability. What is it like? Look, it's very interesting to see what is it 
that suddenly makes me like what I call gasping. <gasps> and you kind of like the mind, and you count things straight, and you, the body. And then how does it feel when we feel stable, when we feel grounded? And to really see, I know when we sit in meditation, it really doesn't look like we're doing much. But personally, I think we're really working on the stability. We're really working on that. I mean, f you might think, you know, for 10 years, I was sitting six months of the year, 10 hours a day. And so you, you might think, gosh, you know, she must have attained, I don't know, you know, surjana or get this or get that. But I would say most of the time, not much happened. You know, a bit of quietness, a bit of clarity, you know. I mean, a bit of emptiness here and there, but, you know, nothing that I would say was kind of, you know, anything to write home about, or that I thought was important enough to write home about. But I feel what I did, and that was important, that I look at very important, is that I really just sitting there, just, I just really practice that stability, that groundedness which then can really help so that the mind might still get a bit giddy. The whole being might be get a little unstable, but then it doesn't go like overboard. When then it's very hard to come back in the middle. I think that's what is problematic. When we go so unbalanced, then it's so difficult to come back. And then in a way to kind of, can we still, of course, have that movement because we're not perfect. That's what, not what we're looking for. But we can come back to the balance in the middle. And I think that's what it is about, or what we do on a meditation retreat. And then the last one, to have no foolishness, foolishness in the mind is wisdom. And so it's back to what we did today. <coughs> to me, this is, what is this? It might be a strange thing to do. But I think what it helps us to do is to develop a questioning attitude so that then when we have a thought we can start to ask ourselves is this true because we are so intimate with our thoughts that we actually can't question them a lot of the time so we think suddenly i am stupid i am always stupid is this true? Can you keep it up? That would be my question. Can you keep it up? Every second, every hour, generally not. I am hopeless. This is an interesting uh, phrase which really generally really paralyzes us. I am hopeless. The situation is hopeless. Is this true that you are hopeless? Generally not. You can read, you can write, you can talk, you can... But to see how if we identify, if we grasp at that thought, then the whole thing, wisdom, totally go. It's like we go into this other space where there is no possibility. We cannot really not see anything else. And so to me, that's part of the wisdom, is that questioning mind. So that instead of immediately, this is like this, this is like that, 
we can start back to the water, the image of the water, the fluidity. We start to have more fluidity. We start to have more what I would call a wise questioning, which will help us to, again, clarify things. And then the last one. However well you practice meditation, without moral discipline, you will be like someone who is shown the way to a treasure house, but never goes there. However well you endure austerities, without wisdom, you will be like a person who stands to go east and head west. Okay, I go back to, this is Wonyo, he's a great Korean master of the ancient past. What he's saying is that however well you practice meditation, Without moral discipline, you will be like someone who is shown the way to a treasure house, but never goes there. So basically what it's saying is that, yes, you can practice meditation a lot. You can, be, you can become hyper-mindful. You can become hyper-aware. You can go into great jhana state. But if there is no ethics, if there is no moral discipline with it, it's like there is a treasure house over there and you don't go there. You're not actually using the full capacity of the training. To me, I think that's the thing. When we say it's, you can do the same with ethics. If you say it's just ethics, then you can become rigid. And if you say it's just meditation, then you become a back very easily to transcendence. And then the first things you transcend is ethics. And one wonder why, you know? So in a way, but here he's saying, when you cultivate meditation, you need to have ethics. The two feed each other. The two complement each other. And it's the same with wisdom. However well you endure austerities. So austerity is like, however much you do asceticism, however much you, know, you practice meditation really hard, you really push yourself, you really very kind of, you know, really intent, really determined. Without wisdom, you will be like a person who instance, intends to go east and head west. So you want to go east and then you take the opposite way. And so basically what they're saying here, again, you can practice so hard because in Korea they do that. You know, they do the seven day of non-sleep week. You know, you sit all day, you sit all night, or they do all kind of things like this. Like there was a place where you have three types of meditation hall in the monastery. You have the regular type and they sit 10 to 12 hours a day. Then you have the next up type, the less of them. The first one you have about 100, next one you have about 30, and those ones they do hard practice. Basically it means they sit about 14 to 16 hours a day, and they might sleep 3 to 4 hours a night. Stephen did it once. <laughs> and at the end of it he said, never, never again. <laughs> and during when he did that, when they forced him to do like, a, I think it was a 14-4, 14 hours sitting, four hours sleeping. And in the middle of it, the Korean calls me, because I lived on the other side of the temple, and said, come and talk to this guy. 
he really is bothering us, come and talk to him. <laughs> and I said, but what's the problem? And they said, he's terrible. <laughs> he wakes up in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, poor thing. It's first, you know, three months meditation retreat, 14 hours a day, and he goes, <laughs> and so they told me, tell him to stop. It's very disheartening in the morning to hear this. <laughs> so in a way, you can practice so hard. But if you don't practice with wisdom, you will not go anywhere. It was very interesting in Korea. There was one master, and he was the only one who forced his monks to sit only eight hours a day. That was a maximum. And then every evening, after 10, he would go and check <laughs> if anybody was sitting more. And if he found them, he said, no way, sleep. Because what he found is that people would sit long hours, and then they would sleep on the cushion. And he wanted them to be awake when they were sitting on their cushion. So very interesting. So in a way, of course, we can practice hard. But in a way, we need to bring wisdom to the practice. So that's what I wanted to say today. Are there any? Question, yeah? Um, Martin, I might have misheard you, but at one point you were talking about um, sometimes the anchor can be the story that's going on. Yeah? Okay, what I mean is that sometimes you sit in meditation and actually you keep going to the same stuff. You keep going to a problem you have with somebody or you keep going to, often it's a decision. I must make this decision. So you're sitting in meditation, you're trying to be aware of the breath or whatever it is. And actually you keep being distracted by this very specific object, specific story. And what I suggest is once a day, on a retreat or at home, you just focus on this. You say, okay, 30 minutes today, every morning, either you're sitting or whatever you choose to do it, and I'm not going to think about anything else. That's what I mean by anchoring in it. You're not going to think about any other thing, but that decision, that problem, that story. But that's a concentration. But the vipassana aspect is that you're going to look at it differently. Because generally, what do we do with a problem, a decision? We just repeat the same thing. It's like this, but they will say this, and if I say this, they will say that. No. Or they did this, and they did that, and it's like this, and it's like this. And it just kind of generally go around in circle. And the more you try to solve it, the more stuck it gets, and you feel really stuck. And so it's kind of, in a way, trying to think, how can I think differently about this? Is there something I have never thought before about this? And to do that, to just kind of, how would somebody else think about it? Or whatever it might be. And so you do that for 30 minutes. And after 30 minutes, you let it be. And then if it comes up again, you can think, tomorrow, 8 o'clock, I'll think about that but you give yourself space. Now, I think we need to think about these things in a kind of what I would call 
creative, creative meditative way. It's what I call creative meditative thinking. Yes? Uh, Maybe a, a foolish or strange question, but um, one of the things that struck me during this retreat is the contrast between what we do as we sit and the energy and joy which come from physical labor and also from intellectual work. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder, if, is there a way in which they can come together? It sort of seems as if you have to do your physical work and then have enough of a break so that all that winds down and the energy dissipates and then you can sit quietly. But is there a way of working with the energy and the joy that come out of physical activity or mental activity and bringing it into meditation or doing something meditative with it? Well, I would say in terms of uh, working, bring the meditation to it. And I think bringing the meditation to it means to, um, to just you know, be mindful, be aware, maybe question your thought about the way you work, uh, the, the tendency you have, and things of that nature. So to really bring the mind, I mean, that's the idea of the work on a retreat, is to, since you do something which is a little different than the sitting, then you can try to bring that creative engagement with it, bring the mindfulness to it. And personally, I would not see that the break is actually to calm you down. You know, the little break is so that you don't have to jump from one thing to the next. So that, you know, if you need to wash your hand, you don't have to rush and arrive here. <laughs> and then, you know, try to sit down. But I would hope that the energy you get from the, from the working as you sit will give energy to your uh, meditation. Because that's one of the eightfold paths, is effort, energy, appropriate energy. And one of the things which was interesting in Korea is that there they don't do slow walking. There you sit in a special way in the room, and then you walk around the room 10 minutes at a good pace. Not running, but a good pace. So you run and run and run, and then you sit. And what is interesting is that when you walk, you continue with the questioning, what is this, what is this? And then you come back to sit and you are zing. You know, often I have that, when I, we teach like that in, um, in England, I sit and I'm really bright, lots of energy. So no, no, the idea is not to kind of have a break to lose your energy. I would hope you bring it. In terms of the intellectual work, I think there, there is two different things. You see, as you sit, you see, the way, personally, I don't see meditation, it looks like that's what happened, as calming us. I don't look at it that way. Personally, I see the meditation as stabilizing us. But as we become stable and more spacious, generally, we get lots of good ideas. And then we can explore them. But as I said, until they start to repeat themselves. And then we can back to the meditation. So that in a way, like when S Stephen talks, or when you think about you know, things you have thought before, you can explore them. But then to see, when is it I am thinking creatively, wisely, and when is it I'm actually just occupying myself, or just proliferating? And I think there kind of is a difference. One feel, I would say, uplifting. One, sometimes I think just kind of, you know, runs on empty, you know, you kind of go around and run. And yes, you could proliferate in, you know, huge way, you know, 
but generally it does not clarify things. So yes, I would say too, we're not just sitting there here like potatoes. <laughs> we're not potatoes, you know. So in a way, hopefully the energy we develop, we use it first to keep awake and also to be present. To me, in a way, one of the things we see when we do a retreat in a day is how different the energy is throughout the day. That we cannot hope to have a permanent state actually mainly because of that. That you have kind of like you, s different people have different level of energy. So sometimes they have more energy in the morning, less in the afternoon, more again in the evening or vice versa. And in a way to take in consideration that energy. Like I mean those are day, oh, I took a, a something for a, the my uh, itchiness. Oh la la, the next day I was like jet lagged. It was like I was jet lagged trying to be kind of just trying to be here, you know. But I managed to survive, you know, you can do, and I still think I was meditating, cultivating stability and openness, but forget about energy. You know, energy was low level. And then now it's much better. Now I feel, you know, I can see it and there is more energy. So no, no, energy is a very important part of the practice. But again, balanced energy. So it's not too little of it, and then there is not too much of it. Yes. Um, you talked about um, trying to take the meditative experiences and uh, apply them as best we can in daily life. And um, I don't know, I, I wonder if it's just enough to be alert to when daily life seems a little different. Um, then I think about you know waiting in line. I often encounter that too, waiting in line, and find actually it's pretty easy uh, to to sit there when you're uh, you know just remembering that you're waiting that there's not any big story. So um, for for me, I guess you know when, when I heard applying meditative experiences to daily life, it, there was a bit of a disconnect there because I feel like they're almost two different worlds. Yet I do feel that they unfold in daily life. It's more like looking for them than, than pressing them in the face. Exactly. I think it's more remembering. Mm. You see, it's kind of back to the choice. It's kind of remembering I could see it that way. Once I had an experience of uh, some sort of formlessness experience. And then after that, either I kind of got caught when I uh, saw certain object, or I could remember, hey, I saw that forms was conditioned. I saw that forms could be formless. And generally, it did not make me have the same experience. But in a way, it softened the grasping at the way I looked at it. So I think sometimes it can be that way, or sometimes it's just something you can access, I think, in your body by just actually coming back to the mindfulness or coming back to what I would call the stability and the openness. And then I think each of us will do that in different way, according to our conditions. And I think we have to stop here, and there is some walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.